Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast. I'm Sherry Budziak, CEO and founder of Source. Association 4.0 is how we describe the skills needed to navigate Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast. I'm your host, Sharon Rice, and with me today, I have someone that I've known for more than 20 years, the CEO of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, David Martin. David has spent most of his career working with associations and is known for his ability to marry strong business development concepts with charitable goals, specifically improving healthcare. As an association executive, he's had a career-long focus on technology, diversity, and partnerships. As he himself has benefited from strong mentorship in the past, he is now also a dedicated mentor to staff looking to advance their association management careers. Today, David and I will be talking about the journey to becoming a CEO and how to know if that's the right career path for you. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. And and we've done some pre-talking before the podcast. And um, it's been, you know, kind of interesting for me reconnecting with you around the concepts of career development and career advancement. And I, you know, took a look at your LinkedIn site and uh, found an interesting little tidbit about you that I didn't know before, but you went from graduating with a degree in uh, business administration to actually becoming a CFO of an organization within three years. And that's a, a, to me, that was really interesting and telling because that's a pretty fast path to an executive position. How did that happen for you? Well, maybe it was a little bit unique for me in that um, I was working for GE in the accounting department of a division of GE, which at the time was the biggest business on the planet. Um, and um, a high school music teacher who'd been my mentor somewhat there um, introduced me to the Bands of America organization, which is a music teacher's group um, where she was on the board. And um, they needed a financial, financial management person. And they were small operation. And um, I went and spoke to them. I said, I, you know, I work for GM, not interested in going to work somewhere else. I didn't really know what an association was. I knew what Bands of America was, but I didn't really know what associations were about. And um, I went and spoke to them and really just to help them get their finances understood so they could read their financial materials. And um, I decided to go to work for them. And uh, that's really how it happened. So it was a, a high school music teacher mentor who sort of promoted the idea that I would uh, work for them. And that was my start in association management. So she obviously saw that executive potential in you. Did you see it in yourself at that point? Did you know that you know you really wanted to kind of advance through the levels of management to the executive level? I really did not. I really thought my stop at Bands of America was really going to just be short term. I'll help out for three years, try to get things in order here, and then I'll go back to being a real accountant, um, which is what I've been trained to do. Um, But after I was there three years, I was recruited, um, and then I went to work for the neurosurgeons. Um, And there I had a strong mentor in Carl Haber, who was all things ASAE, a CAE, those kinds of things. And he is the one that really explained to me that there's a whole world of association management. This is a profession and you can go the, the accounting pathway if you want. 
um, as your profession, but you can also be a, a manager, uh, eventually the CEO of an association. And um, he mentored me along that route. And that's what I obviously did. You know, that's where you and I met when you were working for Carl. And um, I was doing some consulting work for the association at the time. And it's really interesting to me as I look back on that, I, I've never really thought of you as an accountant because you don't, um, I don't know what that means exactly. I don't want to insult accountants at all, but, you know, to say that, that, you know, finance wasn't your sole perspective that, you know, when I first knew you, and it was quite a while ago, I mean, it was in the, the 90s, um, in, in the mid 90s, I think. Um, you already had a broader perspective. I mean, we were working on a technology project together. You had different, you know, areas of um, the organization that were already reporting to you. Did you find yourself when you you kind of came into the these executive level uh, positions as having kind of a broader base of interest in operations or in what makes an association work, just kind of right off the bat? I would say I was a little bit pushed into it, and uh -huh. in Carl's favorite way of mentorship was there would be a departmental problem or a departmental leader left. And he would say, you're now in charge of, in the first case, technology. And I'd be like, I don't know about technology. You're like, you'll define, you're a good manager. Let me know if you have any problems. And um, that's sort of how it happened. It happened that way with meeting planning, with publishing. Um, that is how I ended up with a very broad background. I tell my current staff, I've had all your jobs. I've worked in every piece of the society, really because of Carl and the way he, he mentored by giving you jobs, trusting you could do it, pushing you into it, even when you thought you might not be able to handle it, and um, hoping for the best. And I remember Carl, too, um, in, you know, pretty fondly, because I thought he was a really, he was a kind man. That's kind of how I, I thought of him as I was interacting with him. And he was, he was later in his career at, at that point, at least at the point that I was um, kind of intersecting with him. And it sounds like he really had, um, that he was generous with you, that he really, you know, was interested in your development and your advancement. Yes, absolutely. And he mentored others too. Um, but I think the key things about a good mentor and about Carl um, was that, Number one, he felt very secure in his job. He'd been in the job a long time. He had the time and took the time to do the mentorship piece because it does take, it, it takes time. You have to invest in time. And so if, you know, you're jetting around the world all the time, working, you know, crazy hours, you don't have the time to mentor someone. Carl took the time to do those kind of things. He thought that development was important and certainly me and others benefited from that. But you do have to have, I think, those couple things to be secure in your work, um, not worried that the board is going to fire you or your boss is going to terminate you. If you're worried about that, you don't have time to deal with these kinds of things. Yeah, and, and for a lot of association CEOs, that happens a little bit later in their career when they have that level of security. Um, yeah. They've kind of been there and done that. Um, and, and that's a nice place to be because at that point in your career then, not only are you secure and confident, but it just feels good to be able to work with younger people and bring them along, I would imagine as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think you have to be there, you know, 20 years to, to mentor, but I do think you're gonna be busy learning a new job when you first start. Being a mentor right out of the gate in any job, no matter what it is, 
isn't probably a good idea. You want to show what you can do. You want to learn. You want to present yourself. It's um, part of mentorship, of course, is putting other people in front of your boss instead of you saying, well, these are the people that are really doing this work. So you're promoting them, advocating for them, really. Um, and you have to make sure you're well seated in your position first. So I would say normally five years, you want to be in a job before you're really doing a lot of mentorship. And it's mentorship is kind of a bargain. So I think, I mean, I think of it that way, especially when your mentor is the person that you're working for. So Carl, you just mentioned was giving up his time and his energy to mentor you and to mentor others. Um, so, and so what did you think he expected from you in return? What was your obligation as a mentee? Truthfully, I never felt like he wanted anything back from me. I think he knew that I would do anything he said he thought I should do. Um, in other words, when he said, you know, I need you to take over the technology department and keep your current responsibilities, I would do it. I wouldn't say can't be done or I don't have the time or I'm too busy with my department or I need to raise first. He knew I would just go do it and, and it would be okay. And that's what I would do. At the same time, I always felt like I got generous raises, promotions and title and things without ever asking for them. So I don't think he expected something back. And he would often say to me, and I'm told others too, that, you know, you may not take my job here, but I'm trying to prepare you to take on a senior role somewhere. And it doesn't have to be here um, at the time of the AANS. Um, and, and for me, that's how it worked out. And so when did you, at what point did you think, yeah, I think I would really like to be a CEO? I think it was really after I'd sort of had a couple different departments under my belt and had more confidence to say, oh yeah, I think I can do these things. Basic management skills are basic management skills and they are transferable. Um, Carl also took time to help me with more strategic thinking. Um, because just running things is one thing, which you have to be able to do, but being able to think bigger um, and the like, I think is another skill. And he, he helped me more with that and uh, gave me confidence in something that, that I still remember well, which is sort of gut feeling. Um, we had a meeting one day, there was this issue going on and we talked about it for a while. And he said, well, what do you think we should do? What do you feel about this? And, I said, I don't know, it doesn't feel right to me. I just, I don't know why. I can't really put my finger on it. If you just do the numbers, it would say proceed, but I don't feel like it's right, but I can't tell you why. So we should probably just proceed. And he was like, nope, if your gut says you think this is not gonna work, this is gonna be bad, it's time for us to pull out. And I don't need any more than that. And I still remember that because I was like, we're gonna go with my gut feeling rather than some, some <laughs> the facts of the data or things. Um, and he trusts me to do that, which um, built confidence uh, in decision-making because not everything you know, weighs out equally and heavily in one way or the other. So you do have to be able to say, this doesn't feel right yeah. and we're gonna pull out now, we're not gonna do it. So there were all those kinds of things and he, he was quite good at that. Now. Was it purposeful? Had he been trained to do it? I do not know. But um, he, he was a prior Air Force colonel. 
So uh, maybe he knew something from all of that. Yeah, and I think that he was probably very discerning with who he took on, even though he may not have expected anything of you in when you were engaged in the relationship. He already, I'm sure, had a sense of your potential and, and that this was time well, well spent for you and, and again, the other people that he decided to mentor. It was interesting. We talked a little bit about this before, but, you know, people have asked me along the way whether I ever considered, you know, being a CEO would be interested in doing that. And I'm, I feel, you know, mostly like a natural born consultant. I really like consulting, but I did spend, you know, eight years at Apex and had, you know, more or less a, a number two position. And it was something that I thought a lot about. And yesterday I heard these words come out of my mouth and I don't, I'm going to run them by you. I don't know if I feel good about having said this or not, but I would like your reaction to it as maybe the difference between somebody that, you know, is, is CEO potential and wants to be a CEO and somebody who is like, no, I'll be a number two. So as I was talking to a client yesterday, um, I, I kind of related this analogy, which was that, you know, I'm here and I'll have your back, but as a CEO, you need to take care of your front. In essence, I, I'll support you in every way that we can, but, I, you know, what I, what was never interesting to me or attractive to me was kind of getting out in front, that, that front-facing role of the CEO, um, whether it's board politics or industry relations or, you know, some of those things. Talk to me a, a little bit about how you see, what do you see as the difference between a number one and a number two and, and some of those qualities? Well, I mean, I don't think everybody wants to be the number one person um, like, like you, and I think that's perfectly fine. Um, I do always feel obligated to talk to those people a lot because I feel like maybe they were like me who thought, no, I know how to do these operational things and I'll just do those. When I would see they seem to have ability to do more and see if I could push them a little more along that route. Um, so I still think it's worth trying to expose them to those things and to say, are you sure you really don't want to do? Are you sure it isn't a matter of confidence? Um, those kinds of things, because the things on the front, put it, in my opinion, they're not as hard as the things in the back. Mm. Um, the things in the back are easier because they are work that has to be done. They're processes that are well known. They're structured. They're supported by data and technology and all kinds of things. And in my mind, that is hard to make work, the business side of things. The front side is being able to work as a team with your board members and your volunteer leaders and with your sponsors and your donors and those kinds of people. I don't think you have to know tons to do that. You have to be a nice person, a trusting person, someone they can reach when they need to reach, those kinds of things. But I don't find those things hard to do. I think. If you can only do those front things, but you know nothing about those back things, unless you've got someone really good behind you like you, you may be doomed for failure. As I tell potential CEOs all the time, there's really only one thing that ever gets the CEO fired, and that's when the things in the back don't work properly. In other words, the technology infrastructure is a mess, the money is a mess, those kinds of things, those things don't work well you're gonna be fired no matter how great you are, how much they love you on the front side because they have to have a business that runs well. Do you think you have to have a natural sense of self-confidence to, to be 
not only good at, but comfortable being a CEO? Do you need to be okay in yourself um, so that you're not constantly concerned about, you know, what the board thinks of you or, you know, always feel like you're on the edge of getting fired? I think you can teach yourself those things. Um, I think Carl taught me a lot of those things in that I, I wasn't very self-confident, really. I was confident in accounting. I knew what I was doing. Um, I became confident in the other operational areas, but when he started pushing me out more in front of the board, more in front of committees, those kind of things, I wasn't confident, but you can learn those things. And I think it has depends too on you know who you're working for. Um, here at SCCM, it's very much a team activity with doctors, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists. They all want the same thing. You know, let's do what's best for the patient. Let's make SCCM achieve that mission. And, and they're a pleasure to work with. I don't think any of my staff find them very intimidating. Some groups are more intimidating. My group, I always say, is a hugger group. And <laughs> that um, you walk into any meeting and everyone starts hugging you no matter how well you know them. So I think that helps in a group like this. The music teachers were very much the same. Yeah. The neurosurgeons were not huggy in any way, shape, or form. I was never hugged in my 10 years there. Um, so different personalities, those kinds of things. I will say I never have worried about them liking um, in any job, whether they liked me or not, wasn't the point. I think whether they had respect for me, whether they felt they could trust me, um, whether they felt they confide in me, those kind of things I worried about and worked on. But like, I never thought much. Wasn't such an issue. No. So you learned a lot from Carl, you know, in terms of how to be a mentor. Um, how, how does that get expressed in your work right now? So how are you engaging in mentorship at this stage in your career? So I'm senior in the career, as you know, and so I do have I am. <laughs> a couple of key mentees uh, that I am working with. Um, but really throughout the whole organization, we have a list that we make in the staff leadership team, um, which we call the ready now, ready later list. And there are people that are never on the list because they have demonstrated and said they don't have an interest in development now. They're busy with other things. That doesn't mean they are permanently not on the list. It means they've decided this can't be their priority for a while. So we look at people like that. And so ready later people, we say these people have potential but they need development in this area before they would be on the ready now list. Ready now means as soon as there's an opening above them or in a different area where we could expose them to another department or something, they are ready to move to that. Um, so they develop those other skills. Um, and we have a formal plan that we use to do that across the whole of the staff. It doesn't matter where you're at in the organizational structure, you can have a mentor, you can be part of the plan, um, or you can say, take me out coach not right now. Yeah, and, and if somebody says, take me out, coach, not right now, how do you feel about it? I mean, is that um, discouraging or do you just accept that as them being honest with you and be grateful that they're that self-aware? I think generally we try to find out why it's not right now um, because certain things are perfectly fine with us. We get the not right now because now we're building a family and I have to focus on that right now and I don't want to focus on career. So don't give me more. I just do the thing I do and I do it well. And that's perfectly fine. 
We have others who give that indication, which really more code for I'm not very happy. Mm -hmm. And then it's more trying to find out why is this person not very happy? Is the, is the environment not good? Is something happened that we don't know about? Um, they not like this kind of work. They got into an, the association, but they really don't like the work they're doing. What is it about? And I think you do need to, to dig a little bit and try to find that answer if you can. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. you're gonna have turnover and turnover you know, is not what we want. The reason we mentor everybody is because we don't want turnover. And typically our turnover rates around 4%. Which is, now has it been 4% in the last year too? Uh, it's, well, as far as people leaving, no one's left, but we have added a number of positions in the last uh, year. Um, because society being sort of at the center of the pandemic right. for the ICU providers, we've actually grown. So we've added more staff, um, but we, we've had no turnover during the pandemic. Really. Now, I find that really interesting because I have um, a number of clients who have had significant turnover. I mean, like you're talking 30% turnover during the pandemic. And um, I, I think that there's a, a couple of different reasons for that level of turnover. One is that um, I think the families were really crunched, especially the small children, and may have some of the staff may, members may have made different decisions about what they needed, you know, where they needed to be if they had choices. Not everybody does. Um, we certainly are hearing that there's a lot of uh, open positions within associations, so the movement, you know, there's other positions to be filled you've had kind of a history of low turnover and then especially this year what is the um what's the secret to that what is your what do you attribute that to what what advice would you have for others well i think i would say that it, it is because we do try to mentor people people feel like there's some pathway um we know we can't be the be all end all for everyone they're going to have to move other places but we do try to give them opportunities within the society and i think that helps um, i also think we've been pretty much on the cutting edge of the remote work piece um, we allowed remote work for almost every position several years before the pandemic came um, and so when the pandemic was upon us people that had other responsibilities with children and the like already knew they could work from home and we already had the tools and everything to do it. We've been doing it anyway. In that case, we basically said, we understand they're gonna be kids home now. Um, we don't care if they walk in when we're having a call. We like to see them. Um, it's perfectly fine. Um, if you don't, can't work your normal hours, we don't really care the hours you work. We simply need the work done. Work when you can. If you need the load lightened for some reason, tell us, we will try to shift it around. Um, we just tried to make sure, I think, throughout the pandemic that everybody felt like we were here, we cared, we heard what they needed, and we tried to adapt to it rather than trying to stick with some rigid structure that really isn't needed in most of the jobs our staff performs. Yeah, and you, so you were really well prepared. I, I don't want to say ironically, but but you couldn't have necessarily, or maybe you did anticipate a pandemic at some point, but at this particular um, at this particular time, your folks were already kind of knowing how to be productive when working remotely or working from home. You had those kind of gears already in motion. Um, and then it also sounds like you were pretty deeply empathetic with what they might be going through. 
um, as they were adjusting their lives to the pandemic and the uncertainty of, you know, what work and life, you know, looks like at that point. Um, and and it, tell me a little bit about how you're planning to come back at this point. Well, the board just approved a very large sum of money to once again completely gut and redo our offices. <laughs> They're going to be turned into really nothing but team and conference space um, because we don't really use it as offices. And for the last number of years, it was still configured to be mostly offices and a few conference rooms. And we would use those offices as little meeting spaces. But now it's going to be completely redone into permanent team meeting spaces and the like. So staff will not be returning there, obviously because of the construction. Once construction is done, then they'll go back to using it the way they did before. It should just be more productive for them um, because it'll be more set up. Uh, one of the issues we used to have is we use Teams for our, our normal video uh, chat stuff and all of the stuff we do. But that didn't interface well at the office. We did not have Teams rooms, which they do have, of course. And we didn't have those Teams monitors and projectors in rooms. Um, we will have all of that when the office is redone. But we will stay completely on our remote uh, plan as we have. Um, you asked about sort of, you couldn't have foreseen this. Actually, the society developed its first pandemic response plan in 2005. We updated it again in 2009. Um, and that was before you could easily work remotely. And so back then we switched it over to practicing it every time there was snow. Oh, we switched to snow days and that would be how we practice being completely remote all the time. And we'd extend them a day or two past the snowstorm to you know, see if we could do it. That's how we started practicing um, before we switched to the, you can just work remote now whenever you want, we don't care. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. I know that early in the pandemic, you were pretty read in on what was going on before the general public was and, and maybe had a little bit of a head start, but did you find that the plans and the, the practice were pretty much on point? Um, and it, have you updated those plans in any significant way now based on this experience? I think they pretty much were on point. I mean, they covered all the basic things. We have to assume we're not gonna go to the office for a long time. How are we gonna deal with mail? How are we gonna deal with shipments? Those things were all worked out in the old plan. That was way back because we worried about the swine flu way back then and the bird flu, if you remember those things. Yeah. And it was turned into the pandemic that we worried about, but they gave us the background and the experience. Um, we have not been back to visit the plan, but it is on our schedule now to go through it with hindsight of the full pandemic, lived it for you know over a year, is the plan correct? What changes do we want to make in the plan? What, what things worked and what didn't? What do we do on the fly that we don't even remember is different from the plan. So we have an emergency response site for our staff. It's a staff internet site. Um, the plan is there and all of those kinds of things. But since we've been doing it for so long, we don't really have to refer to the instruction manual very often. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what, what's different about mentoring in that remote setting? So how has that impacted your mentoring style or your mentoring activity? I would say the pandemic itself sort of stopped a lot of the mentoring because we were, you know, full on respond to the emergency. So for a year, shall we say, mentoring did not really happen. Um, it also caused a lot of changes in the staff in that we grew, 
We had more things we had to do. We had to add more staff. We had to reorganize staff. So we were better organized coming out of the pandemic. Um, all of those things made us rethink the who's ready now, who's ready later. Now we have new people. Who are they? What kind of mentoring do they need? Because um, we've not really onboarded so many new people so quickly ever before. Um, so it's changed many things, but because we always do video and we always insist on video for every employee all the time, and we have, as I said before, pandemic, I don't feel like as much we lost that interpersonal time to see each other and talk. Uh, we also use photos of each other and do social things together by video. Um, so you feel a little more like you're together. It's not exactly the same. Um, and we will look forward to return to more private meetings. Meals, I think, before the pandemic, people that I was mentoring, I would mostly, let's go to lunch. We would go to lunch, have a long lunch and talk about it. But obviously now that doesn't happen. But we do have scheduled video calls. So um, you were the last association executive that I talked to before I went um, into uh, lockdown. And um, I don't know if you remember, we were having lunch. Um, and I think it was like, was it the first week of March or something like this? And, you know, I'll, I'll share that uh, you advised me, my mother was in a senior home and you advised me, maybe it was time to uh, have her come live with me, <laughs> which I did. And she lived with me most of last year. So I'm really grateful for, you know, that foresight. Um, and I'm wondering how you're feeling now, what advice do you have for, uh, for me or for association executives that are really um, trying to figure out how are they going to, you know, when they're coming back to working in person um, in, in whatever form that is and how to kind of ease their staff, you know, back into a more normal routine. Um, what should they be thinking about? Well, I think there are many things to consider. I mean, obviously our people have sort of lived the pandemic in a very deep way because of our membership. So there's only a couple members of my staff that haven't been vaccinated already. So for us, we'll be at 100% vaccination fairly quick. And that I think makes a different demographic. They feel more comfortable with one another. With that said, yesterday, our staff leadership team looked at ideas for summer party, which we always do in the summertime. And I will tell you anything that seemed enclosed or as one person said, trapped, um, even though we're all vaccinated and we would only be vaccinated together and should feel very safe, people are no longer accustomed to gathering, you know, nearly a hundred people together at a time for a few hours to have a meal, even though we, we know the staff are vaccinated that are there. Um, so I think it's gonna take some easing back into, no matter whether you're easing into the office uh, those kinds of things. We've told our staff, we have summer conferences in August that are currently scheduled to happen in person. Our registrants are required to all be vaccinated to participate. If they're not, they have to participate virtually. Those are your two choices. Our staff have those same rules, but it's gonna feel different too because over the course of one week at the Sheridan in Chicago, we'll have over a thousand people. Yeah. So you have to be mentally prepared for that. So we've told the whole staff, you can volunteer to work at the event. If you don't want to work at the event, you don't have to work at the event. So I'll have plenty of people who are willing to step up and work. I'm not too worried about that. We've said this will be our rule right through the annual meeting. The annual meeting is next February. 
uh, in Puerto Rico. Um, but if you're not comfortable, then you won't be assigned a job with other people. Maybe assigned virtual event because we have those too. But um, I think you just have to judge based on comfort level. We surveyed the staff every single month, we take an instant poll during the town hall meeting. Um, I try to reiterate things. We have our own president on who is part of Operation Warp Speed to talk about the vaccine and its efficacy, those kind of things. But people are gonna have to ease in, even our group, um, because people are still cautious and rightfully so. Yeah, and so that first step is gonna be important, but are you fairly optimistic that as people kind of start easing back in that they're going to adapt and, and we're going to kind of start moving forward again? Different world, but, but you know. Well, I think so, but you know, as I said, for us, we allow everybody to be virtual anyway, really, yeah. only a couple positions that aren't. So we'll continue along with what we've always done in that regard. Um, but I think, yes, they'll start showing up at the social events and there'll be less hesitancy about working at a conference or those kind of things. And they'll want to return to going to association management conferences and things like that. Right now, none of that's happening. It's all virtual. So I think they will get back to wanting to go out and be with other people. I hope they will, um, because I do think it's good for you to do. But there's no real rush. And um, we just want to make sure that they feel safe and that we're not putting anyone at risk. And in fact, that we're at the other end. We're going to the extreme to make sure they feel safe all the time, whether that means providing shields and masks or gloves or whatever. These are minor expenses and we will pay for them, um, but not even forcing anyone into the situation. You always have to remember, and I talk to our staff a lot about this, that people may feel differently and they may have feel differently for other reasons that we don't all know. Right, then they may have some underlying condition that puts them more at risk. We don't know these things. So we just have to trust our colleagues when they say, I don't feel comfortable, I'm not gonna go do that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. We have plenty of other work to do. You don't have to be at the conference. Yeah. Well, David, it's been wonderful catching up with you today. I really appreciate um, the time that you've spent with us. And um, also, you know, the contribution that you've made to the association industry, you know, in across the globe, especially here in Chicago, and to the many staff that you've worked with, and um, we, of course, at Orcsires, highly admire you, and, and often are saying, "What is David doing?" When we have a question about how things are working. So, thank you for letting me um, kind of pick your brain and and um, and help share uh, your thoughts with the association community as a whole. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Um, I will tell you that we are just starting work on a new uh, remote work human policy. How do you manage people in a very remote and consistently more remote, as in different states, and those kind of things? How do you measure productivity? What are the tools that you can use for all these kinds of things? What's the organization's productivity score? Microsoft generates one for all of us, whether we know it or not. <laughs> um, there is one, you have access to it if you know where to look. So those kinds of human management things in a remote world are gonna be different for many of us. I'd be glad to talk to you about that sometime. Oh, I think that would be super interesting. And then that, that specific question about how do we know that our staff is being productive remotely is one that comes up all the time. Um, but I think that you've cracked the code and I'd love to talk to you more about that. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, David. You so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode and discover tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .orgSource specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com to find out how to get your organization on track to Association 4.0. You can also engage in other educational content by becoming a member of .org community or reading our books on Association 4.0, which you can find on Amazon. We look forward to hearing from you soon.